don't believe, I always think that all this bullshit about to provoke you a little bit more, this is superstitious logic. It's pure ideology. You know this ecological bullshit like... Uh... Hello, welcome to the end of the world. This is Anthropocene's episode 28. And today we are talking about Ad Astra, um, which was released to theaters uh, this past weekend, directed by James Gray. And uh, at what on the surface looks like a Brad Pitt space blockbuster turns out to be a lot of things, but not really that, in my opinion. Yeah, a contemplative space parable. <laughs> and that's our show. <clears throat> yeah. Like um, us on Facebook. Uh, are we are we on Facebook? No, we are not. Okay. Because okay, it's, it's not 2008. Yeah, yeah. Our, and also our social media presence is kind of anemic. That's, that's mostly my fault. But uh, mm. anyway, directed by James Gray, who has done some other things. Nothing too noteworthy, I would say. Lost City of Z. Oh, yeah, that book freaking rules. Uh, the movie uh, adaptation was was cool. Well done, but it was just... Uh, it's a, it was a difficult book to adapt because it's nonfiction and uh, cuts between different times, and the movie just had to go with one time frame, and so it suffered a little bit. But yeah. still, good filmmaking. Yeah, and he also did he did the Immigrant, which was Brad Pitt and uh, Marion Cotillard and uh, Joaquin was Phoenix. Brad Pitt was in the Immigrant. Am I wrong about that? Maybe I'm thinking of something else. Oh, never mind. I'm thinking of. Um, allied i think is the name of that movie oh, anyway yeah, yeah, yeah i don't yeah. know why i got those mixed up in my mind so no brad pitt's not an immigrant um yeah. he also did we own the night so a couple movies with joaquin phoenix which i, I appreciate yeah. um but really i think so james gray co-wrote it with this uh with ethan gross this other writer who's mostly written for television and then he also um co-wrote the screenplay for lost city of z hmm. um but he wrote a few episodes of the show fringe that was on Fox that I actually was really into for about eight months of my life at one point. Yeah. My favorite character is Joey (laughs) from fringe. Yes. Um, so he co-wrote what a lot of people consider to be the best episode of fringe, uh, which is, I don't know, shows that he has some chops for science fiction. He sort of, emotionally hefty writing in that that Mm -hmm. kind of mode but i think the real sort of big name here is and i don't know if this is how you pronounce this but it's how i'm going to say it hoida van hoidema does that sound familiar to you at all that i've seen that somewhere who is that hoida van hoidema again if i'm I'm probably saying it wrong is the cinematographer for ad astro Ah, and okay yeah definitely sounds familiar yeah listen to this this murderer's row of movies this guy's done um, he's done a lot of them, but the the standouts are he did Let the Right One In, which is the Swedish vampire movie that was adapted. Yeah. Um, The Fighter, uh, Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy, Her, Interstellar, Spectre, the James Bond movie, Dunkirk, and he's doing Christopher Nolan's next movie. That's a pretty good resume. Yeah. So he is. This is his third appearance. Shooting. Yeah. On on the podcast, weirdly enough. Yeah. Um, so yeah. And you know, the movie is beautifully shot. Um, it does have a little bit of that, like oversaturated 
kind of look at times, the kind of bluish greenish tint that all movies seem to have now. Well, and it seemed like the, the aesthetics, the visual aesthetics were not trying to be like Kubrickian sort of groundbreaking sci-fi. It was sort of just like, Oh, just a hint of campiness to it. We're like, um, because the the sets were supposed to be at least most of them were kind of be supposed to be like lived in or worn in like it's the future and so this like place on the moon is you know the the airport essentially on the moon is the kind moon of port. old mm-hmm. you know um, so it's a little just like I said just a hint of kind of campy sci-finess or campiness in sci-fi. Uh, it was not pretentious in any way. I, I didn't think like it, it was not trying to be more than it was. Like I said, I, I felt like this was like a space parable, not like a sort of 2001 space odyssey thing where it's like, I'm going to blow your mind with, you know, my visuals or something like that. Yeah. And, and I think for the trailer, at least they, they made it seem more, and, and you know, this is a, a common thing with a lot of films like this made it seem more kind of action packed than it really is. Cause there oh, are yeah. really like maybe two and a half action sequences. Um, yeah. The most, the, the biggest action sequence is the sequence is the first like 10 minutes. At, right? My action sequence. Um, <laughs> yeah. When, when he falls from the, uh, the space antenna, um, which is onto the fucking ground. Yeah. Pretty harrowing and it made me dizzy and uncomfortable. Yeah. Um, in the, the theater I was in, the, the movie theater here is kind of old, has like the old, like deeply padded seats that probably smell like, you know, a thousand asses that have been through them. Um, but the sound was sort of out of sequence. It seemed like, like in the front, it was a little bit before the back. For, and so the sound was sort of weird. So it was like extra disorienting when he's falling. And, um, but yeah, that, that scene was, you know, well handled. I think it, it kind of, this movie reminds me of all the other space movies, but that part specifically and the parts where he's sort of spacewalking reminded me a lot of gravity. Uh, yeah. That kind of feel. Yeah. It. And th- there's a lot, I think we can say in terms of comparing this movie to gravity, but that for sure. Mm-hmm. There's also, you know, like the solitude. That's a big part of the film. It's kind of yeah. about solitude in a lot of ways. Yeah. And there's also the, the fact that, um, this, I think we said talking about interstellar, maybe that like most space movies don't start in space. And this is another one like gravity that does. And, and then it depicts the journey back to earth, uh, as opposed to like interstellar depicting the journey away from earth. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it really, by the end of the film, you and Brad Pitt's character, um, Roy McBride, which sounds like a old timey baseball player. You both, you <laughs> yeah. both really relish that return home. Like the, the return and the being back is sort of becomes the point of the mission at that point, as opposed yes. to interstellar, which is finding a new home, getting to that, that new earth. If you want to think about it in that way. Yeah. Yeah. Um, which is something, you know, we talked maybe exhaustively about when we talked about interstellar, but I think we, it'll be kind of unavoidable to talk about 
that in talking about Ad Astra tonight because it, 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 I sort of went in uh, thinking about it just because, you know, similar sort of type of movie. But I really do think that this movie is a kind of conscious corrective to Interstellar. You know, the, the, like the phrase interstellar means like, like through the stars or among the stars, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, ad astra means to the stars. So like linguistically, like the titles are very similar in a way. Um, but also the themes are reversed. Uh, I, I was thinking about that because we were talking, a, uh, a fan of the show reached out to us and... Uh, <laughs> Um, fan of the show. I, I guess. And uh, he's a guy who runs a, a movie website called uh, So Anyways Movies. And mm-hmm. uh, I saw there was an article on that website, which looks pretty cool. I read a little bit of it. And it's a, about Interstellar comparing it to a movie I haven't seen called The Wandering Earth. But the, the writer of that article was uh, basically saying a lot of the same things we said about Interstellar being you know, depicting this journey away, you know, saying, Oh, the earth is unfixable. Let's leave. Let's, you know, find a a new world somewhere else. And Ad Astra is so, I, I was on board the minute, uh, Brad Pitt's character, Roy gets to the moon and it looks like a mall. And he says, we're just recreating the very things that we're trying to escape on earth. And it's like, yeah. okay, this movie's going to have something cool to say. Yeah, and and that scene on the moon is, I think, it's really short, but it's powerful because, like you say, it's basically like an international airport when they arrive there and you have the people, uh, you know, dressed up like aliens taking pictures with kids and stuff. And you have, you know, like, you might as well see like a, like a Cinnabon or something. Right, um, right, Starbucks or something. Yeah, like but but then on the other side of that, which is also kind of illustrates a point that you know uh, McBride makes of we're just recreating the things, is that that's the the safe zone, and the safe zone is very much like a kind of curated sort of Disneyland type experience. But then you have outside of that the the mining areas they mention, which are you know highly contested and are war zones. They say, and there are pirates that are just like. Moon roving pirates. around moon pirates roving around like you know kidnapping people um and it's and he, pretty said, he he explicitly says you know that the pirates are a resort a resort of like resource fighting yes like yeah. er, they are fighting over natural resources on the fucking moon yeah which makes you wonder what are those resources like what are we mining from the moon that's so valuable I, i'm not sure cheese yeah the, the green cheese um <laughs> this is worth Two million dollars a pound on Earth, um, and so yeah, you you have that sense of recreating um, all of the sort of sins of the Earth on this new surface, this new rock floating through space, uh, and you get that in a lot of science fiction. Like Kim Kim Stanley Robinson did a really good job of that in his Mars trilogy, where he writes about this sort of extended history of the terraforming of Mars and all of the political and you know. Uh, sort of cultural issues that go along with that. Um, and, you know, because he wrote this three novel series where all the novels are like 600 pages long, he gets into a lot more of the detail where, where as in Ad Astra, that airport scene is really quick, but you know exactly sort of what it's 
symbolic of and, and you understand McBride completely when he makes that statement. Right. And that's what we were saying was so hypocritical about the end of Interstellar is that it asks you to feel sort of sentimental about this concept of home. But like they've just destroyed and had to flee, you know, their previous home, the Earth. It's like and I think we said, like, how long till a fucking Starbucks appears on this new planet that they're colonizing? And in Ad Astra, you see that that's exactly what's happened on the moon. That's probably what's coming from Mars and eventually, you know, if they colonize, completely colonize Neptune and Jupiter, it's just it's just going to be an extension of the paradigm that has uh, taken over the Earth. It's just, I mean, because it's the same psychological principles, you know, in the same type of human beings, uh, you know, doing these things. It doesn't matter if you're on Earth, you're going to do the same things if you have the same mindset. Yeah. And did you catch that um, when they're explaining to McBride what the plan is, they say, oh, you'll be flying commercial to the moon. And then yeah. he gets on it and they're like, virgin flight, whatever, to the moon. Oh, I didn't I didn't catch the virgin. Reference. Yeah, I, it, it's like real quick. But I was like, oh, my God. And, you know, the the flight there is very much like a like an airplane flight. And he Brad Pitt's character asked for the, the blanket and pillow. And they're like, that'll be. $250. $122. Yeah. I'm pretty sure it was. Yeah. And, and they, they like get his thumbprint and that's how he pays for it. Um, yeah. I was like, yeah, that, that seems about right. <laughs> yeah. It's exactly like the, those same things that are overexploited by capitalism on earth will only magnify in space. If those systems are allowed to continue and extend that far. Yes. Yeah. And, and that's just a really refreshing perspective. Uh, yeah. which is to say it's my perspective and I'm glad to see it in a major Hollywood production. Yeah. If I was, uh, if I was going to write a space movie, it would look way more like Ad Astra than interstellar. Yeah. Um, but yeah. the, the reviews for interstellar for Ad Astra, I mean, so far are, are pretty mixed from what I've seen. Uh, a lot of people kind of praising this kind of interesting philosophical bent that the movie has, but also saying, um, that it's it's slow and it's kind of navel gazing is the term I've seen used, which I would kind of disagree with, and that's sort of overwrought. And they, I've seen a lot of comparisons between uh, this, well, not direct comparisons, but at least structurally between this and the Tree of Life, just because you have Brad Pitt and a voiceover. Yeah, yeah, and there is, I think there's some thematic overlap, a little bit at least. Uh, so one of the uh, one of the big themes it seems like in Ad Astra is the, uh, the sort of missing the forest for the trees or misdirected uh, enthusiasm, the sort of progress, you know, capital mm -hmm. P in quotes progress um, that the the text at the beginning of the movie mentions. You know, we. We look to the stars for in hopes of progress, I think is what it says. Yeah. And then that to the stars turns into the translation, which is the title Ad Astra, you know, yeah. uh, instead of into the dirt. Right. Exactly. You know, we farmers used to look up at the sky, wander about our place in the stars. Now we just look down, worry about our place in the dirt. 
scene. (laughs) And at the end of the movie, McBride is very much wants that place in the dirt more than anything. Yeah. Uh, Which, you know, we'll get there, but. uh, And not only that, the, uh, the wonder in the stars, which the movie, maybe my favorite part is when he's talking about all these pictures from outer space. Yeah. It's like, Oh, all the wonder you feel. It's like beneath the surface of that is fucking emptiness. There's (laughs) nothing. It's just like, that's it. The emotion stops there. There's no love. There's no hate. There's no fulfillment. It's just like, cool. You know, it's <laughs> well, like lo- earth is the place where love is and, yeah. and family and all these things. You're talking about the scene where he uh, kind of pulls all of his dad's data out of the hard drive or whatever. And he's, he's going over all the stuff that he found. I, th- I think so. It's like it's, it's towards the end. I think it's maybe part of the speech at the end. Yeah. That's when he like uh, he finds all of his dad's all of tommy lee jones's data and he's found all these like never before seen worlds that are all beautiful and astounding uh you know but because tommy lee jones was looking for intelligent life it just kind of amounted to nothing which is kind Mm -hmm. of uh, there's also what you were saying of this idea that you look at it and you think well this is beautiful and amazing and kind of mind-boggling but it doesn't compare to you know being on earth and having love and human connection and all that kind of stuff but for his dad, at least, it was that feeling of, you know, th- this is just failure. These are just slides of my failure to find intelligent life. And that's just sort of like all those years of work and dedication. And he's committed murder for this pursuit of knowledge. And it just like amounts to him feeling empty and hollow. And it's, yeah. it's just such a complete, the complete opposite of interstellar. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. You see a it's like the the people who are rejected by the father in interstellar um the kids mm-hmm. are understanding you know like by the end of that movie when they finally see each other again she like murph like understands it's like oh the mission is worth it um and in this one it's like the mission is preposterous and the mission is <laughs> destructive and you should go home and uh, I don't know if you felt this way too, but there's sort of like Brad Pitt's reaction. So Roy McBride's reaction to what was his dad's name? It's a very like sort of old school. I have to, I have to look at the cast list cause I want to make sure I get it right. Clifford Clifford McBride yeah. Cliff. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, Roy, he meets, he finds his father finally. And he's gone, you know, Clifford's gone just like batshit crazy. And it's just sort of like super old and at the end of his rope and like can't see anymore because he has cataracts. And Roy's reaction isn't disdain or even really sadness. It's kind of like, like, oh, it's okay, dad. Like, it's fine. Like, we're going to get you back to earth. It, you can, you can stop now. And it's a sort of like just the, the kind of restraint and kind of care that comes out at that moment is just sort of like, I don't know, it was refreshing because, you know, Roy could have had any number of reactions from anger to despair, but instead he's just like, it's okay. It, it makes me think of, there's a great line in the Annie Dillard novel, The May Trees, where she says, solitude fosters decency. And it, it's interesting that that point in the movie you're talking about comes after, uh, Roy Brad Pitt's character has been subjected to it's like two and a half months or something. It's like 70 days. Yeah, it's or, a long time 
uh, of of pure solitude on his trip to Neptune, and and so it's interesting that he practices that sort of care and empathy and concern for his father, who, like you said, he could have had any number of reactions to, and he himself says he's not sure how he's going to react when he sees him. Uh, but he does have this sort of caretaker mentality because it, it's almost like he, I mean, he just had this experience with solitude and was losing his mind. And, uh, you know, how long's his father been out there alone? Uh, and you see he sort of recoils at the possibility of being touched, mm-hmm. um, which was an interesting uh, uh callback to a very quick moment in uh in the film in like a flashback maybe it was in the sequence where he's kind of losing his mind on the trip to neptune and you see Liv tyler his uh, is it his wife or I think his so. girlfriend i think it's his wife because i think it mentions that he's once married and divorced oh yeah 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 um she's sort of they're at home and looks like she just sort of approaches him from behind and like is going to lovingly touch him or whatever. And he sort of like flinches. Yeah. Um, it's a real quick shot blank and you'll miss it. But I think you're seeing that he is Roy is sort of on his way to becoming his father to becoming this sort of disengaged, distant, um, kind of, adventure you know in quotes adventure kind of driven uh progress oriented man the sort of 20th century man um and and it's this journey that we see him going on which is mostly a psychological journey which is definitely uh you know hammered home by the fact that there's like a psychological assessment every 20 minutes in this movie um and so that that's I'm pretty sure that's Gray saying, "Hey, this is about a a state of mind, <laughs> you know, yeah. as opposed to a uh, uh, an adventure to Neptune." Yeah, um, and, and I'm glad you mentioned the psychological evaluations because there, there's a couple things about that that I found really interesting, and one of them is that it's a really good representation of, um, you know, in our time in our day in real life, how mental health is. You know, we've talked about this before. Mental health is sort of subjugated to the the back of the the bus, so to speak. Like, it, it's not as important. Your employer doesn't really give a shit. They tell you to do yoga, right? That kind of thing. It's like they they work you to death until you want to kill yourself and everyone around you. And they say, "Oh, just do some namastes and you'll be fine." Yeah. Um, so in this future world, it's literally relegated to the point where you just put the little like microphone receiver on your neck and explain to the computer how you feel. And they decide whether or not you're mentally fit, um, which is, is just like fascinating. And I can 100% see that happening in the next like three years. Uh, but then there's also this, this talking about psychological um, aspects. This movie I think is incredibly uh, well, would lend itself very incredibly to a psychoanalytic reading. Um, oh yeah 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 because the whole idea of uh, the father and this like journey to see the father and just all of this all just well, but, it's just kind it's of a, overflowing about, with that kind of it's stuff a, it's about cutting the cord it's like this umbilical yeah. cutting from the father yeah as if to say this is the real 
thing we need to, uh, you know, disengage from or, or, you know, let go. Yeah, uh, the kind of shame of the father too, because at the end and Tommy Lee Jones is just saying, you know, let me go because he's, he's failed and he doesn't see a point in even living anymore. If he, if the mission is a failure, so just let me go, let me die. Right. And his idea of success is like the accomplishment of some sort of external mission, right? Yeah. That is just about moving forward, like forward motion. And, and of course, the movie seems to be suggesting a, a more uh, relational orientation to life as opposed to a linear kind of external progressive orientation. Yeah. And you uh, have, you know, we keep talking about this ending scene, which is interesting because there's so much more that happens in the movie. But when Roy gets to the ship and, and you know, his father's explaining all this stuff, he, he tells him, you know, I, I didn't feel bad about leaving you. Like I didn't miss you. I didn't miss your mother. I didn't care about you. All that mattered to me was, you know, this project was this Lima project and trying to find intelligent life. And he says, I know <laughs> Brad, Brad Pitt just goes, I know. Yeah. I know it, care. it is just sort of like, you know, back to this point of he's, he ends up not wanting to end up like his father. Um, and you see that kind of develop over the course of the movie. Cause uh, you know, you have, you know, Brad Pitt's character is well known for like having this heart rate that never goes above 80 beats per minute and he can handle everything and he's a master of compartmentalizing everything. Mm -hmm. um, and then that long journey from Mars to Neptune especially seems to kind of break that down a little bit. At first it's, you know, when he's on Mars and he um, is able to contact his father and he has a moment where he like goes against protocol and speaks to his father like as a person and then that that long journey to neptune it sort of it gets rid of all that sort of pushes it away and he becomes more human i guess is, is one way to phrase it he he starts to yeah. think about you know what are these things that really matter is what i'm doing for you know you know space command or whatever is that what's important or is it healing this kind of rift with my father, or at least like bringing closure to that rift with my father um, and saving humanity because I can, I can end these surges. Well, and, and like we were saying, I think the father is representative representative of a kind of orientation to the world, which is a very sort of 20th century uh, definition of masculinity this sort of uh, kind of Clint Eastwood masculinity of, of dominion and progress and development, all these words yeah, Wendell the, Berry puts in yeah, the whole quotations. The work now, play later mentality yes. that, that Brad Pitt's character describes. Um, that if you work hard yeah, enough and, and so, keep your nose to the grindstone, you'll eventually find intelligent life, that kind of thing. Right. Right. So, so with these psychological assessments, this was maybe the most interesting part of the movie for me. So early in the film, he's being psychologically assessed and he is saying things like, I will be pragmatic. I will only focus on what will help the mission. I will eliminate all things that could jeopardize the mission. And it's intercut with scenes of his wife leaving. Uh, so you realize that like, the mission comes first, you know, this is his life. 
uh, and he's passing these psychological assessments with flying colors, yeah. right? This is what, you know, the voice on the computer wants to hear. And, and then he is, you know, in sync with that. And so then he goes on this, uh, uh, well, one, one point I should make before I say this is that we can only assume that the equations and algorithms that have made this computer program that psychologically assesses people's health is in, to some degree an extension of this sort of uh, orientation to the world that has built this you know unfathomable system of technology and industry uh, and so that's why his sort of pragmatism is called health right mm -hmm. so then at the end when he's made this kind of 180 and now his you know his mission has nothing to do with the space command or anything like that he's just trying to get back to his wife on earth and drink a cup of coffee you know uh, then he he has this you know final the movie ends with this sort of final psych evaluation And he's saying things that are exactly opposite to what he said at the beginning. I will focus on what is essential, you know. Yeah. Uh, to me, you, you don't hear what the computer says, but anytime he has a psych evaluation, the computer like tells him whether he passed or failed. He only fails one time after the, uh, you know, the attempted contact with his father, and then he's told that he's he's out of you know he's banned from the mission or whatever. Um, But we don't hear at the end whether he passes or fails. And I just wish that there was two more seconds in the movie so that we could hear the computer tell him that he has failed his psych evaluation. <laughs> yeah. Because because he's come into a way of being that is inconsistent with this system of, you know, this larger system of progress that that only calls health that which is beneficial to the larger system. Um, and I think that I just... I just really wanted that to happen. Um, and we don't know that it doesn't, you know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. It's not like gray, like is suggesting that the opposite happens, but he just doesn't show us that. Yeah. But we do know that in the grand scheme, the grand scheme of things, it does not matter. Right. Because he's not at that point, he's not concerned with any more missions or, you know, being this kind of lackey for space command anymore. He's focused on, you know, like you're saying, what is essential? And to him, it's become, you know, repairing the relationship with his wife, it seems, and, and living a meaningful life on earth, as opposed to always seeking whatever it is he feels like he's missing out there in space. Um, and it, it's, it's part of one of my favorite things about the movie, which is this kind of existential comfort that he seems to get from this realization that we are alone in the universe. Yeah. And, you know, at the at the end when he's talking to his dad and he, he, his dad's saying he fell and he says, well, no, dad, you didn't fail. You just prove that there's not intelligent life out there. Um, and that's okay. So now we know what is important and we know what we should be focusing on, um, which is a really kind of bold stance. And I can't really think of another space movie like this that makes a similar kind of uh, stance. Um melancholia is not a space movie but she says justine says we're alone 
I know it. And her sister says, I don't think you know that. And then she, that's like the whole jelly bean thing, you know, where she like, I just know things. Yeah. So he's, uh, Von Trier is definitely taking this stance of like, there is no one. She says, life life is only on earth and not for long. (laughs) Yeah. And, but you know, you can, it's a, that kind of existential thing where you can, look at that as being extremely depressing. But if you think about it a little more and come out the other end, you can think of, well, now I know where to put my efforts. Like now I know what's important and I know like where I can derive, you know, pleasure and meaning within this, the scope that I know is now the limit of all of existence. Yeah. And, uh, and going back to your, uh, comment about a sort of psychoanalytical reading, uh, something we've talked about on this podcast a few times is uh, this concept I've brought up of the puer eternus, this sort of psychological archetype that you find uh, uh, you see it a lot in American literature. Uh, with, uh, we talked about this with mud, I believe, this, these sort of grown up or these sort of uh, grown up boys, you yeah. know. Uh, but I think that is a sort of uh, meaningful diagnosis of who Brad Pitt's character is sort of coming to be before this story, you know, really, really takes off and who Tommy Lee Jones's character is this sort of man child. Uh, But I I found a quote, I've got this book by Mary Louise von Franz, the problem of the puer eternus and I had this passage underlined, and I think it it uh, comments well on uh, Ad Astra. So the quote is, uh, The puer eternus is, in a way, the opposite of a tree, because he is a creature who flies and roams about. He always refuses to be in the present and to fight in the here and now for his life, which is why he avoids attempting to relate to a woman. Woman represents the tie to the earth for a man particularly if she wants to have children and a family would tie him forever to the earth end quote. And so you see there's a, you know, explicit mention of, of uh, Brad Pitt's character, not wanting to have children because they would be, you know, he would be sort of endangering them or something. Yeah. Which is uh, always kind of rings as, as an excuse, right? Of yeah. Like, Oh, well, I wouldn't be around anyway. So it's better off if we don't, um, which is, it kind of makes me think of people who will say, you know, and I, I don't know how widespread this is, but I don't want to have children because look what hap- look what's happening to the planet. I don't want to bring them into this world, that kind of thing. Like Michael um, and uh, First Reformed. Yeah, yeah, exactly like that, where it, it's like, yeah, that may be true that it'll be difficult and the world is changing and you will have to sort of answer a lot more questions that people in the past would never have dreamed of having to answer. But does that automatically mean that it's irresponsible or that you're doing the wrong thing? I mean, aren't you doing the wrong thing by abandoning those children? Like all all those sort of, you know, philosophical questions that you can ask about things like that. And to me, the most interesting question with regards to climate change uh, with that question is why would the – if people cannot do the things that bring people joy and, uh, you know, I don't know, I don't have children, but it seems like that is a thing that brings 
a lot of people sort of meaning and purpose in their lives. Uh, yeah. And and so why is the earth worth saving? Like, what are you fighting for? For instance, in the character of Michael in First Reformed, what is he fighting for? Why is the world so meaningful to save if, it, you know, if you cannot continue to do the things that give meaning? Yeah. Uh, so, and again, the, that film does not uh, endorse Michael's point of view. It's a rebuttal of that point of view. Uh, and this, this movie definitely, Ad Astra is definitely a rebuttal of uh you know maybe one step removed rebuttal from that position because earth is where these things take place and and this is movie is a sort of unabashed sort of promotion of just like boots on the ground earthly nitty-gritty life not escape uh not some sort of technological uh fetishization which is just like everything now um yeah it, it so. literally is everything it's it's new iphone season so i've been thinking about it a lot it's kind <laughs> of progress for the sake of progress um mm. also made my students read uh, a segment from walden in class and oh, it's nice. the part it's a part where uh it's the famous I, I went to the woods because i wanted to live deliberately that that section where he talks about the train and how it's emblematic of what's wrong with with culture in a lot of ways yeah. um yeah there's more to it than that but we, we're not here to talk about throw uh but the, there you know well, there the, is there is a a sort of longing for nature in ad astra like and, and i it made me think again about interstellar um so in ad astra when uh, Roy fails his one of his psychological assessments, they send him to a comfort room. Yeah, which I like laughed out loud when they said the phrase "comfort room" for some reason. It's just him uh, and a robot that gives him hand jobs. <laughs> yeah, but what did that uh, remind you of? Did it remind you of the same thing that I thought of? So, so he goes to the comfort room and they're surrounded by. Oh, you're gonna say Soylent Green, aren't yeah. you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, I thought of that, but there's another. Uh, uh, comparison I want to make. So he goes to the comfort room and he's surrounded by like pictures of flowers and trees. And it's very similar to that scene in Soylent Green where soul is, you know, getting euthanized. Um, but it's also the fact that they're in space and he's being comforted with pictures of the earth is like an interstellar when, uh, you hear the astronauts listening to sounds of like crickets yeah, and things. And it's like, why are we trying to escape from the very place that, that holds our definition of comfort, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and then there's, there's even more emphasis on it in a voiceover where Brad Pitt says, uh, you know, he's talking about how long it's been since he has been on earth. And how long it's been since he's seen the birds and the trees. And, oh, that's what I was going to say earlier in comparing it. I guess I got sidetracked uh, in comparing it to the tree of life. Um, because there's a, a monologue that Brad Pitt's character in the tree of life has. He's this sort of archetypal 1950s father, not unlike Tommy Lee Jones's character in, in, uh, Bad Astra, but he devotes in the tree of life. 
Brad Pitt's character is sort of devoted to his job. He is this sort of work now, play later type father. He's devoted to his job and then he gets fired. He gets laid off. And he's given this speech and he says something like, uh, I was just, I was paying attention to the wrong things. I couldn't notice the, the birds and the trees around me. I was, you know, I was too focused on these things, which is weirdly like straight out of the brothers Karamazov. The, the line in the tree of life is like, uh, almost like a rip off of it. And I, I, I picked up, I've got it here somewhere. I found that quote in the brothers Karamazov. Uh, I guess it's father Zosima uh, or Zosima. Zosima, yeah. Zosima. He says, uh, yes, there was such a glory of God all about me. Birds, trees, meadows, sky. Only I lived in shame and dishonored it all and did not notice the beauty and glory. Uh, so, so it's like a weird... Uh, like twice removed reference or something. It's like, so the tree of life, the line is very similar and it's delivered by, by Brad Pitt. And then Brad Pitt is in Ad Astra and he's, he's saying this thing that is sort of vaguely recalling that. Um, anyway, there's a lot going on there. Yeah. It's and a, yeah, sorry, go ahead. Yeah. Well, I'll say it's kind of, I, I have a lot to say in, in rebuttal to that. Uh, <laughs> but there's, it's kind of interesting to me that Brad Pitt keeps showing up in these strangely philosophical critique of society roles. It's just weird because, you know, he's Tyler Durden. He's also in Mm -hmm. once upon a time in Hollywood, which has a lot of like interesting things to say about, uh, his name is, his name is cliff. Like, like, uh, yeah, there's a lot to say in that film about, you know, the, the way society has turned out since, the sixties and all this sort of stuff. And then in this film he's doing, and in tree of life, he, he's saying a lot of, or he's, his character is involved in interrogation a lot of a lot of these kind of big concepts. Um, but you know, uh, uh, father, part of it, part of it too, is that he is just like one of the biggest names yeah, and has one of the best production companies. So he's working with the best filmmakers. I thought you're you know? like in my head, I, I thought you were going to say one of the best bodies, <laughs> oh that too um he's got a body that just won't quit no it refuses to quit uh <laughs> but you know father zosima or zosima i think it's zosima i can't remember kind of a little bit of backstory about me in undergrad i took a lot of russian history and culture classes for mm. just because i like the professors but um we read a portion of brothers karamazov that was the alyosha bit uh, mm-hmm. about the i think it's called the, the smell of corruption or something like that and it's when father father zosima dies and his body yeah, that's decaying. that's what this scene is yeah yeah and his body's decaying and it smells because he's a dead body and it's a thing of like well but he can't smell he's he's the holy man like he's untouchable he's just kind of larger than life figure uh kind of goes back to this this whole idea of the the father as this kind of overarching image of authority um and it's oh weird. yeah, that's what I was gonna say. It's like the the overall theme of like death of the father of yeah. of this novel and the movie. That was like the overall point I was making. Sorry. Yeah. No, I was gonna say this is probably like the most salient literature reference we've ever made. <laughs> <laughs> I have to say, uh, but the um, it's weird that the Tommy Lee Jones's character Cl- Clifford McBride in this movie 
is such a kind of strange anachronistic father in a lot of ways um, because you know this film's set in the the near future we don't know how near it is but it seems well fairly it's distant. they're on fucking neptune it's not that near. yeah it seems like fairly distant but tommy lee jones is like a, a, a straight up baby boomer and it, it's it's strange to think about that of how it's i don't know it's it, the film sort of suggesting that that kind of trope for a, a father for an older you know, male authority figure continues into the future. Like it's still around and it's still a thing. Mm-hmm. Um, I just, I thought that was weird because he's really into black and white musicals. Uh, yeah, that was, I thought that was an interesting detail. Yeah. Which is like, maybe he was like a hipster in his day and they, they're just really into those. Um, really interesting. Um, but there's, there's a couple of connections that I think are, are worth talking about. The first one I'll mention, and I won't talk about it a whole lot is just, this goes way back forever to when you're talking about trees um, oh, yeah. and missing trees. And, and, and uh, but what was it you were saying? Like something's the opposite of a tree. Human lives are uh, the opposite. So uh, Mary Louise von Franz, the yeah. Jungian psychologist, says the puer eternus, the sort of archetype of the, the man child, yeah. is philosophically like the opposite of a tree because a tree is rooted and the puer yeah. eternus wants to fly free and roam about and be untethered. Yeah. yeah. And, and it reminds me just because the whole book is about trees is a uh, Richard powers, the overstory, mm. um, which is a, I recommend it to anyone. Um, it, it's quite long, but it's incredibly good. And it ties in a lot to, uh, things we've talked about on the podcast a lot. Um, but the, it has that kind of, it has a lot of those characters that have that sort of untethered man, child, like, point of view and sort of approach to the world but then once they start becoming involved in these sort of more environmental causes or environmental ways of thinking and they start sort of appreciating trees as a non-human form of life that is sort of amazing in a lot of different ways they they become a little bit more uh rooted to to create kind of a pun um (laughs) Uh, but the the bigger thing here, and I even said this to you after I saw the movie, I texted you and I said, this is like the first reformed of space movies. <laughs> um, yeah. And in a lot of ways, I, you know, I think it is. It, it's just, it, it's making you think in ways that I think are very important, but are also extremely uncomfortable about, uh, you know, not just space travel, but the whole sort of human drive toward capital P progress and relying on technology and and uh having some sort of idea of where humanity will end up in the future that is you know far too far-sighted and is sort of missing what's happening in the current situation mm-hmm. so you know we think yeah oh, and oh sorry good no sorry no you go ahead no i was just gonna talk out of my ass you go ahead <laughs> Uh, one thing I did like sort of related to that is we, we learn maybe halfway, maybe a quarter through the movie, uh, that there's been a sort of cover up of, of, uh, Clifford's exploits. So everyone recognizes Roy as the son of a hero, right? Yeah. But there's been a cover up to, to show that, uh, or to, to cover up that, Clifford like murdered all these people and 
so if we're if we're reading this on a sort of uh, like like a parable, um, we see that it it sort of parallels the idea. It's like there's two separate narratives in America of like military and like industrial innovation, like as if as if you could exclude NASA from like the military. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. But like the space race was a race in the 60s to get to the moon was like a nationalistic point of pride. Um, and you, I just don't think you can separate this sort of uh, nationalistic pride that is enacted through advanced like rockets from advanced weaponry. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I think, I think that this aspect of the movie uh, is maybe a suggestion that there's like inherent violence in the ideology of exploration, uh, which is like I'm saying, historically inseparable from violent conquest like you cannot separate the ethic of exploration from conquest yeah and and you see it come up in the movie i think a few times so there's um when they're explaining to him that they think his father's still alive and the guy is is sort of like flattering roy and he says you know you're you're in top physical shape and your uh, psychological evaluations are are good and uh, you've done great in uh, hand-to-hand combat training is one of the things he mentions. And then at one point when Roy gets on the ship that's going to Mars, the guys ask him about like his experience or his experience comes up and he said, Oh, I did how like two years over the Arctic circle or something like that. Yeah. And the yeah. guy says, Oh, well then there's not much that you haven't seen. And, you know, implying what a lot of people speculate in real life that the Arctic circle will become this sort of, as it thaws out, it'll, it'll become this source of contention of like trying to, you know, grab up the land and Russia's already conducting large scale military exercises and all that sort of mm-hmm. stuff. Um, so yeah, it does, it does line up with this idea of, you know, space command is a branch or is deeply related to the military. I would imagine. Um, and part of Roy's training wasn't just science and collection of data and all that sort of stuff, but was combat and was, you know, handling that blaster pistol thing that he's got. Um, yeah. And it, it's interesting. It, it kind of comes up too, where he's, you know, the, the people on that ship, he talks about them as scientists and he says, mm-hmm. Oh, they're just scientists. But then it turns out like, no, they're like on the side of space command and they attack him and try to kill him. And the one guy's trying to stab him with a knife and all that kind of stuff. Um, so you, you see that kind of, it, it's deeply entwined with this, exploratory mission but it's kind of kept in the shadows a little bit and only comes out when it needs to sort of be flexed for whatever reason mm-hmm. um, when they tell him that he's going to have to contact his dad and he finds out like if it doesn't work they're going to go and nuke him uh, <laughs> it's like oh shit okay yeah that makes perfect sense why wouldn't they do something like that uh, yeah another I guess another way I can't believe this scene hasn't uh, come up yet, but because uh, it's the first sort of like, what the fuck is happening when they uh, find the monkey? 
the, yeah, the space baboons or whatever the fuck they space are. Space baboons. Uh, there's a some extreme violence with a space baboon. And I really and, uh, like that scene, actually. Yeah, yeah. And so I think again, going back to a sort of psychological thing, uh, because the the way Roy talks about it, like in his psychological assessment or whatever, mm-hmm. or maybe it's just like a, a video diary or vlog or whatever. Uh, he, I mean, he immediately uh, talks about it in a way that lets us know we're supposed to think about this as something other than like a just a weird experience in space. So he's talking about the rage that he sees uh, in the face. I, I guess he's talking about the monkey, mm-hmm. right? Because this monkey is just psychotic. And He's like, I've seen that rage in myself. I've seen it in other people. Maybe he says he's he's seen it in his father. And so, you know, in a psychological reading, it's like confronting this kind of uh, primitive uh, sort of creature capable of serious rage and violence. Um, and that, I think it's uh, significant that that is really sort of the first stop that's like the first obstacle of this journey because that's like on the way to mars if i'm not mistaken yeah so so he's he they launch from the he takes a commercial flight to the moon and then he takes like a special sort of military type flight to from the moon to mars and the captain of the ship says they're obligated to stop at this sort of sos distress call and the monkey is in this place, you know, that's, I guess, someone has sent out the SOS from before they got killed by the monkey. Yeah. Um, so it's the first thing, and like I'm saying, on a psychological reading, it's as if Gray is saying, the first thing that must be admitted and confronted is your sort of capacity for kind of primitive uh, rage and violence. Yeah, and it also is kind of, I think symbolic of the the kind of uh, unnecessariness of of some scientific endeavors because uh, they mentioned it's like a Norwegian um, sort of biological research vessel or something like that mm-hmm. um, and part of their research I guess is to take these monkeys into space but there's no real like why why would you need to do that other than for some sort of like i don't know it seems like the any data they would get would not be super important um unless these animals are being used for like you know tests to see how primates react to certain conditions in space or whatever um but it seems just like a weird like government funded biological research project that is is more or less completely unnecessary and only serves a purpose of just terrifying these fucking space chimps um, to the point where they then attack and murder the crew. Um, It's it's just, go ahead. If we were like a super hip podcast, we'd uh, insert a clip right here of uh, Tyler Durden saying uh, like a monkey ready to be shot into outer space for the greater good space (laughs) monkey. Yeah. And that's kind of what that whole idea of the greater good is kind of all over this movie. Uh, and it, it's, it, I think it's definitely part of what's going on there. There's this, this idea of, you know, confronting the, the past of humanity, this kind of primal primate rage, 
but also just what the fuck are we doing taking these baboons into space? space. Um, It's, I don't know. I just thought that was, I I saw in some reviews they're saying how it's like that part seems kind of out of place, but I think it's, it's kind of perfect for what's going on. And by then, uh, you know, McBride, Brad Pitt's character is so just sort of jaded with the whole idea of space exploration that he's like, ah, fuck, I guess we have to go do this. Yeah, he's got this nice uh, sort of compelling uh, disengagement, you know, kind of nihilistic voiceover at the beginning where when they're on the moon and they're getting attacked by moon pirates, he's just, you know, these guys are like shooting at him and he's like, what am I doing here? Like in the (laughs) midst of this badass action sequence. Yeah, which is like. What am I doing here? In any other kind of big blockbuster movie, they'd be like. The per- they would step up and be heroic and like save the day, but he's just like, what the fuck is happening? Like, this is just a right. absurd situation that I'm in for no reason. Yeah. Um. So yeah, the the absurdity of space travel, a big part of or of you know space exploration, I guess, at least on, in the way that his father was uh, setting it up, is is kind of dwelled upon a lot in this movie. Yeah, and you see early on, again, back to that sort of um, distant kind of, uh, not sarcastic, but a little bit, uh, I don't know what the right word for it, um, just just kind of disengaged tone of voice uh, at the beginning where he's like walking through some sort of spacecraft and like I think somebody gives him the finger uh, mm-hmm. but that scene and that sort of voiceover is kind of what sets up the central metaphor of the film of like astronaut, you know, he is this astronaut, which we come to see as a metaphor for someone sort of distancing himself from the earth, from, from the earth, from earthly pleasures, you know, mm-hmm. um, because uh, because he's sort of saying this is this is in his voiceover he says this is a performance this is not real. Uh, basically, we get a picture of his of his sort of psychological disengagement, which the literal physical disengagement of an astronaut from the Earth, you know, that's that's representative of that. Yeah. And then it kind of goes back to what you're saying about the kind of umbilical imagery of being connected um, to the father. Yeah. Yeah. The, and that's yeah. another thing, uh, another connection to first reformed, I think is that there's a real emphasis in first reformed on like lineage, you know, like, like sons following in the father's footsteps where, you know, Toller tells his son to, to join the military and then he dies. And then we learn that, uh, or the cop says after Michael kills himself, the cop says like his father was a businessman and a morbid son of a bitch must run in the family. So there's an emphasis on lineage and we see in Ad Astra Brad Pitt kind of, uh, again, like, I, like I said, kind of succumbing to these, uh, characteristics of the sort of boomer 20th century idea of masculinity uh, not being able to engage in like a, a human relationship sort of thing. Um, yeah. And so in his, you know, uh, Clifford, Tommy Lee Jones's character, 
when he's confronted with people who want to leave the mission, his response is to kill them uh, because yes. they're because they're you know they're threatening to end the mission before it can accomplish its goals and all this sort of stuff. Kind of like one track minded uh, kind of uh, workmanship, right? That is. We're always told like that pays off, right? Thomas Edison, you know, it's putting in all this effort, um, and Brad Pitt coming in and just like in the course of that, those few scenes, just kind of like blowing all of that away and being like, "No, this is like, yeah, you've done a lot of good work, and it's going to be helpful, and we're going to learn about these places." But your mission failed, but that's okay because that's the the point of it, right? That's sort of. Because the uh, mission sucked anyway. Yeah, because it, from its very core, it was just kind of uh, doomed to fail in a lot of different ways. Um, yeah. Uh, and it's sort of, it, it makes me think of confronting, you're talking about lineage and sort of confronting human lineage in general because that's a big part of sort of Anthropocene climate change discourse. Um, and it's a big thing that comes up in first reformed of, uh, well, his thing is, can God forgive us? But then there's this, this sort of running theme in climate change discourse of how do you explain it to children? You know, when future generations look at us and say, you knew and you did nothing, how do you respond? All that sort of stuff. And it's just part of this kind of ongoing lineage of just human destruction and, negligence and ignorance and all this sort of stuff that you as a a living breathing person have to sort of consider and and think about i think um because i was talking to you about uh, trailers before this movie we got or i got uh one for midway which is the new roland emmerich which we you know we we did day after tomorrow on the podcast which is definitely this pat the baby boomers on the back thanks for saving the world this was a really inherently good thing you did and then right after that was Sam Mendes' 1917, which I don't know what the film will be like, but it seemed like a much darker kind of, um, you know, this war was all the folly of man type type thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it also kind of ties in what you're talking about of exploration as being inherently violent. And you have the whole um, sort of reclamation of uh, Christopher Columbus from this kind of conquering hero that you learn Columbus sailed the ocean blue in 1492 and it was a great thing yeah. he discovered America and then you you know get a little bit older and do a little bit more reading and you learn like no this was a terrible thing and like millions died and continue yeah, and to it's, die and it's categorically impossible to discover a land where hundreds of thousands of people live yeah exactly and, and so it's just sort of this you know this long lineage of of mankind and how you how you choose to interact with that lineage goes a long way toward, I think, uh, distinguishing your your politics, your sort of orientation to the world, your way of being in the world. Um, and, you know, when we see it play out all the time and we've talked about it on the podcast, right? If you think Western civilization, however the hell you want to define that, is sort of the peak of human existence and we're doing the right things, then you're going to have an orientation toward the earth. That's very different from someone who's more critical of that orientation and says, well, no, we've been fucking up since 
you know, we crawled out of the fucking water. <laughs> like it, it's, it, <laughs> yeah. You're going to have a very different orientation toward the world. When was you're it thinking that way? Was it Gandhi? Somebody said, what do you think of Western civilization? And I think it was Gandhi who said, I think it would be a great idea. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That's what uh lava quotes that um, every now and then. Uh, it's, it's, and it's a great comeback if nothing else. Yeah. Um, but yeah, yeah it's idea of like, yeah, I think it would, let me know when it happens. I'll let you know what I think. <laughs> right. Right. But I think uh, kind of what you're getting at there is sort of uh, what we see in that scene where, uh, you know, the sort of cutting of the cord scene where where Roy has recovered his father. He is trying to bring him back to Earth and uh, he doesn't uh, Cliff Clifford doesn't want to go. And there's that dramatic scene where. Uh, Clifford just keeps saying, let me go, let me go. And, uh, you know, this is like, like you said, you cannot not read this movie in a psychological way. It almost feels like a dream yeah. um, in a lot of ways. It feels like a dream to be interpreted, um, you know, for like an individual or something. Um, and that scene, especially was like, let me go, let me go, Roy, let me go. Uh, it is, I think it, uh, you know, on one level is Roy understanding that he has to, uh, he has to sort of be done with this kind of, uh, paradigm that his father represents of this sort of constant forward motion, constant capital P progress, um, to the neglect of of the things that are actually indicative of human health, like relationships and family and, you know, all these things. Um, so yeah, I, I really think that that's what you're talking about is sort of what's happening there in that scene on a, on a psychological level. Yeah. And I really like something I really liked about that scene is uh, for one, it kind of, it sort of reminded me of the shining, where he's like, let me go, Roy, let me go. <laughs> um, but he, so Roy unhooks him with a little like carabiner looking thing from, from his suit. And then he holds it up and he shows it to him. And it's a thing of like, okay, you're disconnected now. Like this is what you wanted. And then, you know, they, they sort of push away from each other and Clifford floats out into the, the abyss. Um, it, it, I don't know. I just felt like it was like weirdly powerful of like showing of like, kind of like 100% confirming that Clifford consents to this separation of like, this is it. Like if I let you go, you're gone. And he's like, okay, right. fine. And then they, they float apart. Um, and it's kind of cool that he, uh, I noticed this and I kept, I kept hoping that it wasn't going to play a part, but you know, he, uh, Roy goes back to the, whatever the ship, the Lima project ship. And, uh, he still has the, cord like attached to him and it's kind of like dangling off and for a second mm -hmm. i was like i really hope that doesn't get caught on something and like you know become a problem uh but it is sort of like it's showing like like an umbilical cord right it's still attached it's still like right it's no longer attached to the father but it's still there right and it's sort of this reminder of what was going on it's also maybe kind of unavoidable to talk about the same way we did with interstellar. Anytime you have the father figure lost in the sky 
to talk about that father figure as a God figure. Yeah. Uh, and, and I think there's, uh, you know, just a sort of easy comment to be made about cutting ties with the sort of patriarchal God, um, you know, uh, abandoning that conception and all that it implies for, uh, and, and all the harm it's done in terms of like a patriarchal culture, um, uh, of which I think Tommy Lee Jones character is representative, um, in that sort of, yes, he's a father, uh, but he's this distant father who just literally explicitly says he does not care about his family, yeah. um, that there are more important things, um, which again is like exactly what Interstellar is saying, just in a a little bit more softened way. Yeah, um, and the the fact that uh, the orientation toward time in this movie, between this movie and Interstellar, is also I think worth mentioning because in Interstellar, there's all the the relativity stuff going on, and that that's why you know, uh, you know, uh, his daughter keeps getting older and he stays the same age. <laughs> that, that kind of thing um but in at astra time and its passage is really emphasized um and, and part of it is because we're so close to uh brad pitt's character and we we stick with him the whole time that we sort of it's part of why the the middle part of the movie uh, middle toward the end is a little bit slow is because it it's emphasizing this passage of all of this time and all of this solitude that's just sort of stretching out um and it's a very different orientation to time than an interstellar where he he's in the tesseract for like you know three minutes and then he's like 70 years in the future or whatever uh it's just like i don't know it's it's i think a useful use of of the time and the sort of extensiveness of it in in ad astro yeah i was uh it makes me think of a uh a john updike thought from uh, his novel Rabbit Redux, the second uh, Rabbit Angstrom novel, which I read recently for whatever reason. Uh, oh, we we got I got it when we were in that weird ass bookstore in uh, Chattanooga. Yeah, yeah. That like <laughs> that books are just like there was like yarn everywhere. Yeah, I can't remember what that place is called, but it's like on like the main drag in Chattanooga, and that like weird old lady owns it and it's like she wanted yeah. to really start a yarn store but she couldn't just sell all yarn. she had all she had was 10 million books <laughs> yeah. um anyway w- worth uh, visiting if you're ever in chattanooga yeah yeah, yeah. anyway um uh, so i was reading that book and there's a great thought where updike says something like you know rabbit suddenly like realizes that time is not some sort of extraneous imposition on a human it is it is the human element like that is what people exist in that is what humans like space and time is the human element and so any feelings you have of yourself you know capital s self as existing beyond or before or outside of time is an illusion and a fantasy um and 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 so I think you can sort of see an interstellar uh, Christopher Nolan kind of succumbing to that fantasy and illusion and Ad Astra kind of, again, correcting that. I really feel like this movie is a in a lot of ways a corrective to interstellar 
sort of suggesting time is a very human element and an inescapable element. Yeah, definitely. Um, I, I, I'm interested to see what you think of or what you thought about uh, Ruth Nega's character because she's only in it briefly and she's the, the Mars commander or whatever, oh, yeah. like the commander of yeah, the, the I Mars was, station. I was a little bit confused by, by that. And it, it, it's interesting because she, she meets or she's talking to Brad Pitt in the, the comfort room while you see like images of birds in the ocean and all that sort of stuff. And she mentions that she went to Earth once when she was a kid and that it was beautiful, but she's only been the one time she was born on Mars and that her parents went on the Lima mission and Brad Pitt's father, Tommy Lee Jones's character, murdered her parents. Yeah. So I think if uh, there, there's a way to read that as a kind of. Uh, uh, so so she's not from Earth. She is from another planet. If you if you sort of shrink that down to current day ideas, maybe she's from another country, you know, mm-hmm. and and this sort of orientation to the world we've been talking about of violence and exploration and conquest. Uh, so maybe, maybe the suggestion is that, uh, Clifford's orientation and, and all that he represents is, uh, really part of this paradigm uh, of military intervention and violence through conquest that, people outside of the U S or earth as the case is in Ad Astra are really feeling the most negative effects of this orientation to the planet. Yeah. And, and that's an interesting way to, to read it. And that's kind of, because like you're saying, I think you can read this as like a space parable, the, the parable of the space sun, the prodigal space sun. Um, (laughs) Because that character is sort of, I don't know. It is a sort of, people on earth don't even consider hardships being faced by the people living on Mars, right? They mentioned there are like 1100 people on that station and maybe there are other stations and the fact that people are being born there and living and dying there in this world of just like concrete and screens and, you know, red tinted everything. Um, (laughs) It's just sort of, you know, it was, I thought it was really intriguing, but it's not really, it's not really lingered on too long because once you learn that uh, Tommy Lee Jones killed her parents, that's sort of all you need to know. And that's why she's going to help him escape and all that. And he has this big like uh, rebirth scene right out of the womb of the underground lake onto the rocket and on to, to Neptune. Yeah. Um, but yeah, Ruth Nega's character is very much, I, I just thought it was way more, there's way more going on there than maybe they spent time directly explicitly telling you Mm -hmm. and she sort of i mean it's implied that she sort of sacrifices her job if not her freedom because he says they're going to come for you because she helps him get to this uh to this rocket launch illicitly and uh yeah so she she sort of lays it all on the line to get him there um which is weird because, you know, again, it's his father that has killed her parents. Um, yeah. But it seems like. And, but, but isn't that where they talk about, like, the burden 
you know, in that conversation, they say something like we've all got this burden. Um, and it, it felt very sort of, uh, racial in, like in terms of a race conversation, like, um, the burden of like ancestry. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I don't know. I'd have to see it again and, and think more about it or, or read some something about it. I'm not sure. And, and Brad Pitt even, I kind of wish they wouldn't have put this line in the screenplay because it's so obvious, but Brad Pitt does at one point say something about the uh, the sins of the father being yeah. visited upon the son, which is like, yeah, yeah, we get it. You don't need to put that in there. <laughs> yeah. um, but yeah, just, I don't know, that whole idea of it being a parable and sort of, I think that, can also because you could easily look at this movie and be like oh it's dudes being guys it's Brad Pitt and his daddy and daddy issues and all that uh but you know, kind of like mother if you look at it as being kind of more of more symbolic in that kind of way of uh you know earth as mother Liv Tyler as connection to this sort of feminine idea if you want to think about it that way which can be reductive the feminine idea of rootedness and yeah. reproduction and all that sort of stuff and tommy lee jones as the just out in the world trying to you know spread his seed so to speak yeah impregnate the cosmos um i, I think that's a really useful and, and productive way of looking at the movie because if you look at it on a kind of surface level face value way um I could see why people would be like, oh, this movie's not very good. I had a moment kind of like, you know, your story about the student that you show them the scene from the Truman show and then he goes sucked. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. We, uh, we, so the movie ended and there were these two guys sitting like college age dudes sitting in front of us and it ends and the credits start rolling and, and, uh, the one kid like stretches and he goes, that sucked. (laughs) (laughs) I was like, okay, cool. You've obviously thought a lot about this movie. Yeah. Uh, so I, w- I saw this with Jensi, and she did not remember this, and I'm, I'm sort of thinking I'm crazy now. Is it me, or were there was there the suggestion that uh, in a flashback or something that Brad Pitt had lost a sibling? Like Roy had, like, I, am I crazy or is there like flashbacks where he's like hugging another like little kid or is he like hugging the dad? I can't, I, I don't remember. I, f- I feel crazy now. Cause like, it's so clear in my mind and it's like shot in like a sort of vintage looking with a, like a vintage looking camera. Um, I, if it's there, I, I didn't notice, but I, then, be, I because he says again. when he sees his dad, he's like, he likes, uh, specifically says, your only son or something like that. Huh? I don't know. I'd have to watch it. It's going to drive me crazy. I'm going to like have to see it again. (laughs) Just walk up to the ticket counter and slap down the money. You're like, I have to do this. (laughs) Yeah. But uh, I don't know. I, I just, I was pleasantly surprised by this movie because we sort of were, you know, going on the seam of our pants there of like, Oh, we'll watch that Astro. We'll find something to talk about. And then I saw it and I was like, oh, we're going to be fine. There, there's a lot going on here. As Yeah, like I said, as soon as uh, he said the line about uh, recreating in space, like on the moon, the 
the conditions that we're trying to escape on Earth. I was like, yep, I'm on board. Did you notice that the the way Earth looks is kind of strange? I don't know. It all kind of looks like, and it might be because he's supposed to be at like the space facility place or whatever, but it's all very like mountainy and like sparse grass and everything's sort of like, I don't know, like craggy looking. I did notice that it is sort of strange and, and there's not really uh, a mention of like climate catastrophe no, outside or, you of know the Arctic saying? circle stuff. There's really no mention. Of, and it could be that, you know, if Brad Pitt is high up in space command and the son of a hero, then he's not experiencing it on the same kind of level as other people well, would kind of like well, Nega's character. The real, the real issue I think is that we're not supposed to, think about it literally it's it's if anything is indicative of climate change it's the sort of surge that keeps happening you know so so something's happened on neptune because of because of clifford who again is representative of this dominion and uh, capital p progress and so something that's happened up there is causing these surges which keep causing these accidents which are killing people which mm-hmm. almost kills 40,000 people. Did you see that? There, yeah. The, the, the use of like TV and news tickers in this film were, it was really well done. I thought. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, over like 40 something thousand people have died. And so, so this, you know, pioneer man, explorer man, um, uh, is out doing his thing, fucking everything up. That is, reverberating through space and over time causing catastrophes i uh, you know i don't want to reach for that interpretation but i think it, it, there's probably a a decent argument to be made for that well, yeah and it, it, when roy gets there gets to the lima project at the end you learn that clifford knows that the surges are happening but has no idea how to fix them and he created this issue because he says, you know, some people tried to escape and go back to Earth and he had to kill them, I guess. And in the fight that they had, these surges are sort of a byproduct of that. Um, and he's like, oh, I'm trying to end these damn surges and I don't know. And, and it is sort of, if you want to read it as kind of a one-to-one comparison, it's sort of like older generations being like, well, we've created this problem, but, you know, fuck if we know how to fix it. Yeah. It's like yeah. a burn after reading, like, hell if I know what we did, but <laughs> we know we won't do it again or something like that. Uh, yeah, I, I think there was a kind of a viral clip of Greta Thunberg uh, sparring, I guess is how the caption put it, with a congressman. It was kind of a anticlimactic video, but uh, yeah, you definitely see that sort of generational tension. Yeah, and uh, uh, Greta, you know, one of my personal heroes at the moment. Uh, just to talk about her, kind of sidetrack, talk about her for a second. Uh, I think a big reason why people are so shitty about her in general uh, is because she is so young. And we just have, a lot of people have that sort of like automatic recoil from that. Because like, well, what do you know? You're just a kid, blah, 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 blah. Uh, but if you think about her being you know, so young being, having, you know, being on the autism spectrum in some way, having Asperger's or whatever it is that, that diagnosis she has, um, 
and she's still going in front of world leaders and telling them to their face like you're wrong we should be you know taking action like i don't understand why everyone can't rally around that and see that as being an act of, of heroism of being brave and it just well, like it deeply means, pisses it means they me off. can't eat at applebee's five days a week yeah you can't you, know? <laughs> you can't get your riblets at happy hour um <laughs> No, I'll say, uh, I'll say this, first of all, with full knowledge that built into Greta Thunberg is the sort of rhetorical advantage because anyone who refutes a, a young girl uh, is the asshole, <laughs> you know, <laughs> uh, but I, but I will say I'm like 98 percent on board. I think she's she's great. She's a good uh, a, a good uh, overall a maybe like the most inspirational thing going right now. Um, but her whole thing of like unite behind the science is a little troubling. Yeah. Uh, you know, she's just sort of talking about science as if it has no connection to the conditions of the culture that she's trying to have changed, you know, um, that like there is no, there is no, capital s science like that's not a thing it's an idea uh, but in practical reality um, i'm not saying the science is wrong i'm saying the science is an extension of this culture and that's the very thing she's trying to change so you can't just like keep this one part as if it exists separately from it and people are never going to unite behind the science. I think we have to give people other reasons to unite. Having said that, I agree with fucking everything else, you know, like just the general message of just like, uh, young people having a say in like what the fuck happens in the world, uh, is, uh, a definite, uh, positive. Yeah, it goes against, you know, generations and centuries of this idea of children as these kind of like helpless wards that you have to guide until they turn 18 and then go out and be somebody. Um, yeah, yeah. And know, that's, I took a, a an adolescent literature class uh, in grad school and there were some interesting ideas about kind of the invention of the teenager and how yeah. it was really kind of a marketing demographic, like the you know in quotes teenager was like invented like to the, be sold shit to yeah in like the what like the 30s or 40s maybe yeah yeah uh, like a relatively exactly. new invention um, right and and so we see it as like uh i don't know just sort of like added a step in between childhood and adulthood or adolescence or whatever and, and obviously if that means you know 14 year olds aren't being forced to pop out children it's like oh yeah. obviously some progress real progress has been made but at the same time uh, that doesn't mean that they should be marginalized and relegated to a point where they have no responsibility and then and then the same people who are bitching about this are bitching about them not growing up you know being 20 <laughs> 23 and living yeah. with their parents or whatever Quit bitching about climate change and get a damn job yeah it, it yeah, I just, ah, I don't know, frustrating thing. And, and, sir, and, you know, by no means first person to say this, but this whole idea that if if climate change is something, if part of the issue of being able to sort of witness and 
comprehend climate change is that it's sort of extends so far in both directions chronologically to the past and to the future. Well, if it's so concerned with sort of the, the, the conditions of the earth in the future, why the hell shouldn't young people take it take it up as a major concern or be able to speak about it? Right. Um, you know, you hear people say, well, even if climate change is real, I'll be dead long before then. Yeah, but not everybody will be dead. Like there, there will be people right. coming after you that you should be considerate of. Um, and, you know, and that's part of the issue of not being being able to project it in your own mind in the future and how you can factor into it when you'll be so far gone. Yeah, and, and it really just, I mean, that's there's just no way to make that a good argument. Because there's also the, I mean, if you have any sort of moral backbone, it's like, uh, and this is something I think about a lot, like the things that climate change requires are not just good things because of climate change. Like maybe we've talked about this before, but kind of the whole history of like American literature is in a lot of ways this sort of. Uh, chronological account of like counterculture and its place in society. And I mean, what you see, I mean, think of, uh, like you said earlier, Thoreau and think of like Brook Farm and that sort of countercultural experience. And then uh, 60s sort of hippie communes, like all of these movements existed and we're about living self-reliantly, living without reliance on fossil fuels. Uh, and all of these predate any notion of climate change. Uh, so it's like there is some sort of inkling in humanity that there is a correct way to live. There, there is a way to live in keeping with your environment that has nothing to do with some sort of pragmatic solution to climate change. It is just like there is a way of being that is psychologically and environmentally pleasing that artists and thinkers forever have been talking about, not as a practical solution to a problem, but as a good way to be in the world. Um, so, the people who say, oh, it doesn't matter, I'm going to be long gone, they're not even in the realm of like thought, you know, <laughs> uh, you know what I'm saying? It's yeah. like they're not even thinking at all about this. Like, oh, just it doesn't have to be a solution for it to be the right thing to do. Yeah, it's that, uh, that tweet that I, I love but can't remember who, who tweeted it, which is, um, you know, if we make all these changes for climate change, what's the worst that can happen? People are going to say, oh, we made the world a better place for nothing. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, yeah, it's just a lot of it is just sort of common sense ways of, of being in the world in a way that does not directly harm your environment uh, mm -hmm. and, and, you know, that environment of, of everyone else around you. Um. Yeah, and part of that is is what like Ad Astra and First Reformed are getting at of just looking around you and saying, you know, it, even if this is the most life has to offer me, that 
you know, has more than enough to, to be enough, right. To, to sort of give me something to work toward the betterment of, or the, the, uh, the, uh, sustainability is not the right word here. The, the sort of cultivation of, right. Um, yeah. And, you know, if you can't see that much, then how the hell are you ever going to see anything on a, a more global scale? Um, how can we go out into the universe and do these amazing things if we can't even cultivate relationships and, and you know, ways of being in the world here? Yeah, um, it really it really makes me think of I can't remember the title of the article, but I talked about it on some other episode. The writer Val Plumwood, uh, and it's a paper about like relationality. It's a it, it's a radical fucking paper, and it's awesome. Uh, about sort of rethinking the kind of subject object dualism of rationalist philosophy, and of course that's you know connected to uh, kind of mind-body dualism and uh, religious ideas of another world and this this sort of separation uh, of human beings from everything the idea that we are apart from the from the earth and and coming into a way that is more relational and uh, under understanding yourself understanding the self as as a part of relationships as opposed to like a complete subject that uh, moves about on this uh, constant field, you know, that we call the environment. Um, And so understanding yourself as in relationship to the environment and as in relationship to all the other people and animals, you know, everything. Um, And so, I, I mean, it's, it's not, explicitly there in ad astra but it's in some ways is implied just by the the emphasis on the return to earth and and noticing you know the more immediate or as brad pitt says the more essential things yeah and people usually say things like you know someone gets caught up in a hurricane or a tsunami or some sort of major uh catastrophic event and they say well you know i'd never really considered the power of the earth or sort of, I had never really, I never really understood my, how small I was in the, as far as like significance of living beings is. Um, Mm. and you know, sometimes it takes something that massive to get people to be like, Oh, I am a very small part of (laughs) like, I am, I am, you know, enmeshed in this web of all these other things. And I am just as likely to be, swept off into the ocean as a squirrel or something. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, the, the thing you hear astronauts say of, you know, realizing how fragile the earth is, all that sort of stuff. Um, Oh, there's a, there's a shout out to the blue marble in, in Ad Astra. Yeah. Yeah. Donald Sutherland's character who we haven't even mentioned, but yeah, Donald Sutherland's in this, uh, for a brief moment says, you know, the blue marble. Um, (laughs) There's also never ceases to amaze me. Yeah. And it shouldn't, that's the sort of thing that's like, he's a very kind of human presence of looking up and saying, Holy shit, that's the earth. Like that's where we live. Um, yeah. and you know, the, the Natalie Portman movie that's coming out, uh, Lucy in the sky. 
that's kind of about that astronaut lady who went crazy and tried to murder the guy and drove across the country. Do you, this is making oh, I, this ring I any bells? that story, but I didn't know about this movie. You should watch the trailer for it because it's it, her sort of orientation toward space travel and returning to Earth is very similar to McBride's and Ad Astra, I think, except, you know, <laughs> it gets it gets kind of caught up in some other things. Yeah, except like she puts on a diaper and drives across the country and murders someone. Right? Yeah, well, tries to, yeah. But tries they, to. Natalie Portman. There's came a out Ben and Fold said, song where he like references that. <laughs> well, Natalie Portman came out and was like, "There's no diaper, that's not in it." Um, but it looks it looks interesting, and I, I think it's healthy that people are starting to look at space exploration not as a as a negative thing, but as at least the motivations for it is like maybe they're not always in the right place maybe we should reconsider these reasons before we just automatically assume that we want to build a moon colony or whatever yeah i like that aspect of it and i also like that we like the technology has uh, like for movie making uh you know making movies in space or about space has been so good now for long enough to where the movies have stopped being about the kind of uh, technical achievements. It's not like I said, it, this movie is not like, Oh, look how cool these shots are. It's just like it, it has been uh, normalized enough to where we can actually start to tell meaningful stories, not, uh, you know, not sort of James Cameron type bullshit where it's just like people are showing up because the technology is new, you know, see that fucking train coming out of the screen, yeah. uh, where the, the, the medium is not the message, you know? Yeah. And, and I think that is because, you know, gravity kind of, well, I mean, even going back like 2001 was pretty, pretty revolutionary, but I yeah. think after, we're, we're sort of, as far as space movies go, we're sort of in like a pre-gravity, post-gravity world. Yeah. Uh, where that kind of yeah. blew everything open. And now, if you're going to make a movie with a, that spends a significant amount of time in space, like you've got to put in a lot of a lot of work and sort of make it technically impressive. But then on top of that, you you in order to make a film that's worth watching and carries messages that I think are worth communicating, you have to go an extra step and also you've got to be able to take that technical aspect of it for granted yeah and then that's like that that's got to be the setting yeah and that can be really difficult to do if you're doing all these sort of like things that as far as movie making goes like compared to 20 years ago might as well be fucking magic yeah Um, yeah but gray pulls it off man this is like solid it is yeah and I think yeah. I'm interested to see, because this is, as far as I understand his output, this is way different from other things that he's made in the past. So I'm kind of interested to see oh, yeah. if he becomes like a new, interesting voice out there making films. Well, I, that's a thought I had watching this movie is how um, sort of just how film literate a lot of good directors are now to where you don't have people uh, you know succumbing to the sort of James Cameron thing where it's like everything is this you know all the movies I make are these big fucking blockbuster explosion things uh, or Michael Bay type thing uh, to where 
you can have somebody like James Gray who makes, you know, the immigrant and then like an adventure type historical story of the lost city of Z. And then here's this space movie. Uh, the same is true of, uh, especially of Alfonso Cuaron who, you know, makes the, made these sort of indie, uh, dramas and, uh, and then he made gravity and then he made, uh, Roma, which is just this other thing entirely. Uh, so you're seeing a lot of like versatility to where this is not their thing. And yet they have the ability to make a really good, uh, science fiction movie, uh, which is, you know, I don't know if that's always been the case. Yeah. And I kind of wish, I kind of wish more. I wish like Paul Thomas Anderson would make a big sci-fi movie. You know, that, that kind of thing. I wish every big name director would take a swing at something like this. Yeah. Yeah. Um, But you know, that's just my, my personal thing. Yeah. I'd watch a, I'd watch a Quentin Tarantino sci-fi, like Quentin Tarantino in space, you know, (laughs) the be in space. No (laughs) one can hear you dropping in bomb. Yeah. Uh, the the title would be Quentin Tarantino in space. <laughs> oh God. Um. Well, okay. I think that about 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 gets her. Alrighty. Um. Yeah. So uh, follow us on Twitter at Anthropod Tweets. Uh, I'll get to what we're doing next week in a second. Uh, we're available, available on SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, iTunes, all that sort of stuff. Next week, for your listening pleasure, we're going to be attempting something a bit different. Uh, we're going to be talking about a movie that uh, wasn't immediately, didn't immediately pop into my head, but uh, Will brought it up, and I think it's going to be, it's going to lead to some pro- productive conversations. We're going to be talking about uh, from 2014, Grand Budapest Hotel, directed by uh, the one and only Wes Anderson. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. I love that movie. Uh, yeah, and and I think it's like you were saying, going to have some interesting things to say about living in uh, precarious in the times. End times. Yeah, <laughs> um, and you know, maybe we'll mention some. Uh, well, I think we'll inevitably mention some of his other films. Specifically, I'm thinking like Isle of Dogs. Yeah, yeah, um, I might have to give that one another and, look and, too. And you'll probably. Um, Moonrise Kingdom, as far as but all, all, you know, now I'm thinking about the the ending of Fantastic Mr. Fox, and uh, uh, there might be something to say. Oh there shit! Too. Anyway, you know, let's you know what we should do. Let's just do Wes the, the author theory thing with Wes Anderson. Okay, I mean, we'll, we've we'll already have seen to them be all. Probably a, a focus on uh, on Grand Budapest. Yeah, yeah we'll let's focus make on it that. all tour theory. What is it? Five? Uh, yeah, Four? I think so. I think Berg was okay. the fourth, so it'd be fifth. Okay. But so yeah, we'll focus mainly on on Grand Budapest Hotel. This, I, I love how this kind of shows our decision making progress or process, <laughs> yeah. lack of progress. Um, this is this is the process that you miss two minutes before we start recording. It's just like we throw some shit out there, and then yeah. We're like okay, it's it's me like making a few notes and writing down what number episode it is and all that, and then I'm like okay, ready to go, and then Will says, "What are we doing next week?" And I'm like, "Shit." <laughs> um, so. So yeah, next week Wes Anderson, Grand Budapest Hotel. Uh, we're gonna we're gonna get real twee with it. Mm. Um. So yeah, at Astra, go see it. I recommend it. That ass, bro. That ass, though. <laughs> Bad Astra. <laughs> <laughs>